and think what about, about who's Lord. When you watch the news, what are you watching? Well, you're watching a lot of things, but in essence, at its core, you're watching people talk about stuff that has happened and the consequences of those things. So the gospel, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus happened and is a reality. Now, how much bearing that reality has on your life, you can decide at some level, but it's a reality. It's something that has happened because of which the world is different. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler. This week, Dean and I are rounding out our introductory episodes on what is the gospel, reacting to a message by Sky Jitani. It's been our through line for the whole thing here, talking about the historicity of the word euangelion, how the gospel is proclaimed in the uh, gospels of Jesus, and especially in the book of Acts. We talk about that today, and we've been reacting to how the gospel is proclaimed in our modern time. And then at the end of this episode, we talk about right and his distinction between the gospel being good news or good advice. And I hope that is very helpful for you guys because that frame has really helped me and informed how I think about the proclamation of the gospel in my own life and in our churches. As I have said before, I am raising money for my trip to go to Oxford, England this summer to study C.S. Lewis in his time and in his place. And so... Any gift to that was appreciated. I am enormously grateful for everybody who's given. And the link is in the description below if you would like to do that. If you do give over $5, you become part of the group that will get special access to content I'm going to make as a consequence of this trip. So, again, thank you guys very much for listening. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your donations. And we will see you in the next one as we continue to talk about justification and the gospel. The section that a certain group of scholars would call second Isaiah or deutero Isaiah, Mm -hmm. the use of this term becomes very centrally focused for how it seems to get employed and referenced in the New Testament. Um, The words they... They expect Yahweh's eventual great victory. And in some instances, it is tied to a herald preceding Israel out of Babylon back to Zion. It is not understood in these contexts as being a proclamation that is far off and coming at some point, but something that is coming as it is being proclaimed by the messenger. That's an important distinction to make Hmm. because that helps and this will be a conversation for a way later time, helps bring into focus certain ways we think about eschatology and how the gospel is related to that. Um, They were actively returning to Zion, and they were going to live in step with what that return meant in their lives there and then. Um, So this message brings a restoration to Israel, new creation, and the inauguration of an eschatological age. A new age, and this is interesting, 
because this is the Old Testament. This is in Isaiah. A new era for Gentiles who are now part a part of God's kingdom as well. And I'm talking Isaiah 52, Psalm 96, 2, and Isaiah 60, verse 6, and surrounding. Very, very interesting, right? The inclusion of the Gentiles is inherent in the use of this term basar and euangelion, which become gospel, right? The good news also brings liberation to the poor. Um, this word is not just breath and sound, it's effective power. That's a direct quote from the, the commentary that I'm using. Um, so they're talking about how this word is like accompanied with God's power moving, which is interesting. Um, it's also tied to, in the Septuagint, dikaiasune, which is translated as righteousness, which will become important for next week. Sotera or soteria, um, which is salvation. And so where we get soteriology, soteriology, the study, study of, salvation. of salvation. And so, um, and arene, which I believe is the word for truth, but don't quote me on that, but it, it's all tied together. And so you can see already in the old Testament, we have the shapings of these categories being aligned with gospel in the way that they're employed in the gospels and in the rest of the new Testament itself. And I think that's important. Um, talking a little bit about Greek literature specifically, um, this word is um, used to proclaim victory by an army to an anxiously awaiting city, which I think is interesting. The, a messenger would come back from the battlefield proclaiming the euangelion, and the city would be waiting anxiously because if the battle didn't go well, they might be next on the chopping block. And so it's, it's a message of salvation in that sense, right? Because you are not deliverance. You're not going to die. Um, it could also be used for weddings, good news of a wedding, good news of the birth of a son, and specifically the son, a royal son. And so this is how gospel gets tied into the birth of Christ, right? Jesus' birth, and how that's a part of the story of the gospel. Um, it's ironically used. This I thought was kind of funny. It starts to become ironically used. Emperor Nero tries to have his mother assassinated, and she sends him a euangelion of the good news that she survived the assassination attempt, ordered by him. So that's, that's kind of funny. Um, Sounds very Shakespearean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and later, later and later in um, Greek and Roman history, this word gets associated with um, the imperial cult and the worship of Caesar. Mm -hmm. And that's important to note, right? Very, very important. So like we were talking about Domitian, man. Yep. It, it, well, it, it is the Domitian it is conversation that. that we were having, right? It, just import all of that here. Think about how you have to make a choice between the reign of Caesar or the reign of Jesus. Because the gospel of the Bible is Jesus Christ is king. That's it. 
And that means a lot of things. But that's it. A royal son was born, and that royal son died and was raised and is enthroned in heaven and all of the ways that that impacts our life. Christ Messiah being that typology, right? He's the Messiah embodying all of the typology carried forward from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Bible. Um, let me make sure that I don't miss. And um, there was, I think, maybe the most interesting thing that's left to say is that, um, and, I, and I could say a lot more because there were there were a lot of points in in the um, the word study that I did, but for sake of time, I'll just say this. The word as it's used in the New Testament is more intrinsically linked to the way it's used in the Old Testament than all of the different ways that it's used in their culture. Probably the most, um, the most direct link culturally is that link of the imperial cult and Caesar and the way that that gets tied together. And so I think it's most important to understand that and this good news, the coming of Yahweh's eschatological victory, all of that. And if we understand those two things, we understand the significance of the gospel message as Jesus Christ is king. That's awesome. Any? I, uh... Any thoughts? I'm going to read something. <clears throat> this is Psalm 2. It's thought up to be a, it is a messianic psalm. I'll read this again once we read Heiser, and it is going to be a lot of different bells are going to go off in your head at that point. But to your point, to what you just said about the Use, what was the word in the Old Testament? A basar. Basar. How basar is used and how that maps on to euangelion. And there are similarities, there are overlapping themes here. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed Against his Messiah, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with an iron rod and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's quoted in Revelation. Um, 
And today you are my son or you are my son today. I've begotten you like mm-hmm. talk about intertextuality. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, this is highlighting some of the wrath and anger of God against unholy kings, which there's a whole other conversation to have there, too. But just the lang- think of the language here. God, his anoint, plotting against his anointed one, him setting him up to inherit all the nations, all peoples coming under his rule. This is the language that's used in Psalm 2, a psalm that was seen as this is what's going to happen. This is eschatological. This is how God makes it right. No one expected Jesus would, and maybe this is worth a, a, at least part of a discussion. No one expected that he'd enter town on a donkey and then get hung on a tree. But that's how this happens. But this is what's in view. Yep. Let's just, let's go there. I'll just read one verse. The last verse of Psalm 82, Psalm 82, verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. This is the vision. It is the anointed one given dominion over all the earth. What did Jesus say? For all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This this is the this is Bashar. This is the vision. This is the this is the message, the end. This is what is to come, right? The Evangelion, the new king who's in town, the news from the battle, who has won? How did he win? What does that mean? Well, um, these are all great questions. I think we can, do you want to do the next portion? I think we can skip it. Let me look real quick. It's Sky giving his Jesus is king answer i mean we just gave all that i guess unless you think we need to Mm-mm. okay um do you want to play the last video the last section sure okay let me uh pass forward it All right. So this is him talking about the scope of the gospel. Because their goal isn't Jesus. Their goal is heaven. 
or avoiding hell. They use the gospel as nothing more than fire insurance. We preach a gospel of fear rather than a gospel of love centered in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the first reason this is important. The second reason is scope. If you buy into the popular gospel, hell, heaven, Jesus is how I get there, then what you believe really matters is one thing. And that is souls going to heaven when they die. Right? Say the prayer, get to heaven. The popular gospel says that the scope of what God is up to in the world is souls. He's rescuing souls off of a sinking ship. It's a popular metaphor that's been used since the 1950s. Souls, souls, souls. We've got to win souls. If you believe that is the scope of the gospel, then the only thing that really matters in this world is being a pastor or a missionary or behaving like one in your off time. Because that's the only thing that God cares about redeeming is the souls of people. But is that what we've just read in 1 Corinthians 15? What is the scope of Christ's redeeming work? We're going to skip that for a second. 1 Corinthians 15, we just read this. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. What did we just read in Psalm 2, Psalm 82? These messianic pictures of Bashar, of the good news, of the all things coming under God's dominion. What is this? When all things are put under subjection to God, the God may be all in all. In God, Christ is reconciling the world to himself. For in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. John Walton, this sounds very confrontational. Uh, peace by the blood of his cross. Now, these are consequences of what that means. This is, again, this guy is talking about the scope. What are, what's the implications of your gospel? Are the implications just that you will, in an escapist sense, die and go to heaven one day? Or are the implications that you will live a life as though Jesus is king? Because those are two very different Or is the implication just that you enact social change? Yeah. This ethereal eschatological utopia that's almost man-made because Jesus doesn't really seem to be on the throne in those models. Like we were talking about earlier, it makes man the center. But if Jesus is king, then we're not the center. Earlier, he did, um, this might have been in the section that we chose not to watch, but he talked about how <clears throat> I think there were zero within the the book of Acts and the letters and maybe even all of the gospels, there were zero mm -hmm. mentions of sin every time gospel was presented, zero mentions of heaven and zero mentions of hell. 
I think it was, or maybe there was like two mentions of heaven, two mentions of heaven, zero of hell. Um, But Jesus kingship and the proclamation of it were two of the highest ranking things on the list tied to what the gospel is. That's, Here, that's you can you can play that real quick because it's gonna okay. it's gonna yeah. go pretty well into these uh, little excerpts I want to read from from right. Okay. Yeah, I found it. And also, just a foreshadow, what Sky does at this little section of his sermon, but he says he went through every time the apostles are gospeling, they're proclaiming the gospel in the Book of Acts. That's what made Scott McKnight write the book, The King Jesus Gospel, was he went through all those and found, well, there's a lot of common themes here about what is being said, so let me write about it, making the same points guys making in this sermon. Yeah, here we go. In different settings, preaching the gospel, presenting the message of the apostles to various crowds and having them respond in faith in Jesus. The question is, what was the message they preached. There are six gospel messages, six gospel sermons in the book of Acts. Acts 2, 3, 4, 10, 13, and 17. Now we could stay here all afternoon and go through all these one by one and that would be fun, but I've already done that for you. So what I did is I took all these gospel sermons and I put them all in one document and then I read through them and I kept a tally of the various ideas that were presented and how frequently in these six sermons. And I want to show you the results of that tally. So, how often is, the, is hell referenced in the presentation of the gospel in the book of Acts? Survey says? Zero. How often is heaven talked about in the gospel sermons in the book of Acts? Zero. How often is sin talked about? Twice. And actually, that's not entirely accurate because in one of those references, which we'll look at later in Acts chapter 2, sin is only mentioned in response to the gospel, not in the gospel presentation itself. So you could say one, parenthetically two. How about Jesus' life? Four times. Jesus' death is presented nine times. Jesus' resurrection, 15 times and Jesus' lordship ten times. What we find in the gospel preaching in Acts is perfectly congruent with what Paul says his gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel that the apostles present, both in Acts and throughout the New Testament, is a gospel that's centered on the life, the death, the resurrection, and the rule, the lordship, of Jesus. That's the good news they present. Now I have one last bit of evidence. Here, you can Go back to that tally and I'll read this. Ten times. So I'm going to read a little bit from N.T. Wright's book, Simply Good News, why the gospel is news and what makes it good. He spends the first chapter answering the question, what is news? 
And so, so he says this. He gives some examples of scenes that could scenes in you know normal life that could be constituted as news. And he says, first, the news in each case isn't just something that has happened out of the blue. Each one of the announcements I mentioned assumes a larger context, as if it were a new and unexpected development within a larger story. In the first case, the announcement comes amid the story of a sick and dying child. And the second, the long, the long running story is that of the well-known sporting rivalry between the teams. Someone has won or someone has lost. In the third case, the announcement comes in the context of a slow, sickening decline of a whole region into social depravity. The news in question makes sense within that larger story. Only by knowing the backstory can we understand why the new announcement is good news. Second, the news is something that has happened because of which everything will be different now. The news has significance. It makes an impact. It has, in, it has consequences that alter lives. When you put good news within a larger story, it isn't just a matter of, well, that's nice, but now we're going back to things how they were before. In the case of football victory, it might feel like that after a few weeks, but the time, at the time, it always registers as a new beginning. And then he says this, in many churches, the good news something that which has happened about which the world is a different place. The good news has suddenly changed into good advice. Here, follow these five steps and you'll get your finances or, in order. This is why every February, and I'm not knocking these things, churches have series on relationships, right? Part of these are consequences of what the community of Christ looks like if they are, you know, believing in the gospel. But many times these fruits, as we've been saying, get conflated to the gospel itself. The good news has suddenly changed into good advice. Here's how to live, they say. Here's how to pray. Here are techniques for helping you become a better Christian, a better person, a better wife or husband. And in particular, here's how to make sure you're on the right track of what happens after death. Take this advice, say this prayer, and you'll be saved. You won't go to hell, you'll go to heaven. Here's how to do it. This is advice, not news. The whole point of advice is to make you do something to get a desired result. Now, there's nothing wrong with good advice. We all need it. But it isn't the same thing as news. News is an announcement that something significant has happened. And good news is what Jesus and his first followers were all about. So just to interject for a second, I don't go know ahead. if you have more that you want to read, but... I have that last page, but okay. go ahead. Um, just to make this the contrast between advice and news explicitly clear. What N.T. Wright is saying here is advice is, here's what I think, take it or leave it. It would probably be beneficial to you if you took it. News is, this is what's happened whether you like it or not. And you can live in accordance with that news. 
or not, but it doesn't change the reality of the situation. What happens water... every election? <laughs> not my president. Yeah. But he is. Yep. You got to deal with that reality, whether you like who's in office or not. You got to, that is the reality with, in which we live, and at least in America. Like that's, and the rest of the world it has consequences because of this, right? Yeah. But point is, we, when the poll results come out, it's not advice. It's not, well, you know, if you want him to be, then like, sure. No. He, or maybe she at some point is president, right? It's not advice. It's about, it's news about something which has happened that now the country is possibly going to be different or different in certain ways. We have to live with that. Well, and this is why we spent so much time talking about truth and interpretation and all of these things, right? Is because the waterfalls are there whether you like it or not, right? Mm -hmm. What about the waterfall? We kept saying, what about it? It's there. What about who's the president? It's news. You can't change that what about who's king even think what about, about who's lord when you watch the news what are you watching well you're watching a lot of things but in essence at its core you're watching people talk about stuff that has happened and the consequences of those things. So the gospel, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus happened and is a reality. Now, how much bearing that reality has on your life, you can decide at some level. But it's a reality. It's something that has happened because of which the world is different. Well, and not my president. Okay, move to a different kingdom. Right? But you, you have to do something in order to make that reality not bearing upon mm -hmm. you. Otherwise, you're stuck with it. writes says this later in the second chapter talking about how this news is perceived is it foolish is it scandalous or is it good is the question something because of which people are now something that has made the world a whole new different place something because of which people were now faced with a challenge like herod faced with octavian's victory if this is the new reality, where do you stand in relation to it? 
We will say more about both elements of this good news in a little while, but it is important to emphasize right away that what Paul was talking about was not what most people today imagine. If you mention the Christian good news, most people today imagine that you're talking about an, a, an option you might like to take up if you feel so inclined. That would be advice, a piece of advice to continue. If some, for some, it's a new kind of spirituality. Here's a Jesus-focused interior life for those who want that kind of thing. For others, it's a new way of living. Here's a Jesus-based morality. Or indeed, your community might like to follow. For others, again, it is about taking out an, op taking out an option for the future, a kind of retirement plan, except the retirement plan in question takes place after your death rather than before it. It's a way of making sure that you at least will be safe and sound, even if the rest of the world isn't. Some people, as we will see, highlight the last element, and when they talk about good news or the gospel, they focused almost exclusively on this aspect. Some people do the same with the idea of reestablishing re our present relationship with God after being cut off through sin. John Piper. None of these ways of looking at things are, as they stand, totally wrong. The message of Jesus and the message about Jesus do include something about spirituality, something about morality, something about the ultimate future, something not least about our relationship with God. But all these miss the main point. The good news brought about by Paul and before him by Jesus, though we will come to that presently, was not about an option you might wish to take up. It wasn't a piece of advice. It was about something you may or may not wish. It, it wasn't a piece of advice about something you may or may not wish to do. It was news, something that has happened because of which the world is different. And they claimed it was good. When we had our first discussion about literature, we used Lewis as a frame for how to think about literature and its role in our lives. And Lewis talks about how literature isn't the spectacle at which you look, but it is a set of spectacles through which you look then you judge the reliability of that literature on how it conforms to the world in which you live. Does it give you right insight, let's say? How does it illuminate things? What is it telling you? And Lewis, obviously, funny. No one's ever read more Lewis in history, but Lewis thought that well, shortly after he wrote um, The Problem of... No, it was... Um, what book was it? After he wrote Miracles, he was kind of burnt out on doing apologetic writings. And he thought it wouldn't be worth his while. No one would read him after he died. He didn't know he would die so soon, but after Miracles... He thought, you know, I'm kind of done with the 
apologetic endeavor. I'm going to write some fiction. So he ended up writing Narnia. And <clears throat> Lewis still has this frame, you know, the stories we tell, the things we talk about, the literature we read as frames from which to view the world. Stories that we view the world through. And this is very much the case in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it is very much the case in Prince Caspian. If you've read Prince Caspian, what's interesting about the book is that in the beginning, you have a land in which Narnia and its vitality of the past has been subjugated and oppressed and forgotten and done away with on purpose. But the prince has a tutor, a tutor that tells him these stories of old, rekindling his imagination for what Narnia and this land used to be. And I think Lewis is doing some things about, you know, if we forget the stories of our past, we're We're doomed to destitution. But a, a central question in Caspian is, is he going to believe that these stories are real, even in the appearance of Aslan in the book as the kids come back to Narnia? Lucy's the only one that can see him no one else see, literally sees Aslan, but she believes he's there. So he keeps showing up in glimpses. And the two stories parallel each other as Caspian comes to find, the, go, go through the woods, come to find Narnia, traverse through the forbidden forest, let's say. Um, Aslan appears more to Lucy. So he's, he's playing with these ideas of forgetting the past, bringing it back, recalling these stories. But for what purpose? Well, because these stories are about a certain reality that you cannot deny in Narnia. Very much as Aslan, even in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it's, he's paralleling this too because Who's the first one to meet Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Who's the first one to see him? It's Lucy. She's the one who has the faith. And the question in Prince Caspian and the question in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is so which story are you going to believe? Is this the world of the white witch? Is this the world of the new oppressive king that, that through generations has subjugated and done away with the magical history of this land? Or is this the dominion of Aslan? 
And can we not see him anymore because we've forgotten him? Or is he really there? Are we going to believe that history hinges not in the 18th century, but in the first century on the resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits of new creation? Something's happened because of which the world is different. So what are we going to do about it? And do we do we believe that that story is true? In its factual sense, sure, but also in the sense that that reality now then governs what happens. What happens with us, as we've talked about in all of our ways in which the gospel works itself out, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, Right? And the ways it affects us individually, interpersonally, in our communities, and how we interact with government, and how we interact with our cities. But like I said, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ died, he's buried, and he rose again. And he started something new. Something changed because of that. So, and it's reality, whether you want it to be or not, what are we going to do about it? The story of Caspian is, is he going to recapture the Narnian imagination? And the story that, yeah, the question we're posing with this is, are we going to recapture the Christian imagination? Because that's what we're attempting to do. And it seems like a lot of people are getting bogged down in all of the fruit that the gospel is supposed to bear. But I don't really think it can bear that fruit fully if we don't understand what it properly is to begin with. That's why I spend my time doing this. That's why I love it is because I think the gospel will bear fruit if we keep what's supposed to be central central. And far too often, I think we get distracted. So let's recapture the Christian imagination. Let's live in the right story not the story of the white witch but the story of aslan you want to end on the clip yeah the narnia as a window through which we look at our own worlds. It's a, 
an approach that Lewis inherited from others. You might think of um, E. Nesbitt, who he read back in the early 1900s as a young man. But the point I want to make really is this. Lewis, in effect, introduces us to a strange world called Narnia. They do things differently there. But as we read and as we think, it begins to give us thoughts about our own world. And I think one of the main points to make is this. One of the core themes of Narnia is this. Who can we trust? What story about things is the most reliable? And you might like to remember what happens when the children enter Narnia for the first time. They hear different stories. Is it really the realm of the White Witch? Or is it really the realm of this mysterious figure called Aslan, who one day is going to return? And the children have to make judgments. They have to say, we think this story is right and this story is wrong. And one of the most intriguing features of A Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is how the children begin to make judgments about the reliability of the stories and the reliability of those who tell them. And the point that Lewis is making <clears throat> is this. That in our world, as opposed to Narnia, we hear different stories. Are we here simply randomly, purposelessly? Or is there some deeper logic, some deeper structure to reality that we can discover which actually makes sense of who we are and what this world is? And one of the points that Lewis is trying to make is that we need to be critical about the stories that we are told. Now, of course, the story that Lewis tells in Narnia is not one that he invented. It's a retelling of the grand Christian narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And what Lewis does is to transpose this story to his own, <coughs> his own realm of Narnia. Pause. I think that's a very important... Yeah. What story are we going to believe? How much I think this is this is the question that we'll come back to again. One of the ones we'll come back to again and again and again. How much bearing do you think the biblical story and let's say specifically the gospel stories have on your reality? How much? Is it news? Is it really good news? Is the gospel stories good news? The ones about Jesus, as we've talked about all in these typological episodes, embodying Israel, being the perfect Israel, offering himself up, dying, rising again, entering, ushering in new creation. How much bearing does that have on our, on our world, on our lives? 
Is it really news? Is it something that has happened because of which the world is different? Or is it just simply a vehicle for good advice? That's all I got. I'm with you. No better place to end. <laughs>